I was at this time living, like so many atheists or anti-theists, in a world of contradictions. I maintained that God did not exist, and I was also very angry with God for not existing, and I was equally angry with him for creating the world. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 61, Spirits in Bondage. After Hours with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Andrew, Matt, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm David, and we're now nearing the end of Season 5. And we're currently in our final speciality month for this season, Poetry Month, focusing on the often neglected subject of C.S. Lewis's poetry. Today's episode began with a quotation from Surprised by Joy, where Lewis describes how he felt at an earlier point in his life right around the time that he wrote and published a collection of poems under the title Spirits in Bondage. We're going to be looking at that collection today, and our guide will be the notorious KSP, Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior. Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior is Research Professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She has a monthly column for Religion News Service, and her writing has appeared in publications such as Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and First Things. She is host of the podcast Jane and Jesus, and she's the author of many books, including On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books, and Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, Abolitionist. Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior, welcome to Pints for Jack. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Well, this interview has been a long time in the making, because in 2020, I think it was, Lexham Press produced a new version of Lewis's poetry collection, Spirits in Bondage. And I noticed that you had written the forward and I had followed you on Twitter for a while. Uh, And so we had intended to have a poetry month back in season four. So I contacted you for that. But we then ended up bumping it to this season. But we're finally here and we are digging into honestly one of the strangest books of Lewis that I think I've ever read. Now, during this interview, I'm going to be drinking some Earl Grey tea. Do you have anything to drink? Well, I know this is supposed to be like a drinking show, and I, <laughs> I, I just earlier today had a cold, refreshing Diet Pepsi. It's a hot um, Virginia day here, and so I'm not drinking anything at the moment. Okay. I wouldn't say we're a drinking show. But we just want people to stay hydrated. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, we should. Yeah, that's drinking. Yeah, particularly in the summertime. Well, today we are toasting Patreon supporter Erica. Erica, may your spirit never be in bondage, and may you always recognize the goodness of God in the world. Cheers. Cheers. So to begin with, would you mind telling listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Well, um, as you said in the introduction, I teach at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, A lot of people don't know that this seminary has a college attached to it. So I primarily teach English to college students, which I have done even before coming to this institution for over two decades. So I'm basically an English professor. And I became an English professor just because I love to read literature and Now I can get paid to read it and talk about it with my students and uh, grade their papers. Um, And so I'm just a, a, you know, I actually consider myself to be a reader first and I write some and I I teach literature. So that's me in a nutshell. And you mentioned uh, that you're a writer as well. And I mentioned some of the books in the introduction. Would you mind just saying uh, a few words about those? Sure. One of the reasons that I think that this 
this podcast got delayed a little bit is for the past year, I've been working on my newest book, which will be out in 2023, called The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. So I'll be talking about the history of evangelicalism and just all of the art and literature in that culture and our surrounding culture and how it's shaped us. But the book that I, uh, more recent book that's been out for a few years, which we've mentioned is on reading well, finding the good life through great literature. And in that book, I talk about um, the classical virtues um, that have been studied by church fathers and Greek philosophers for millennia. And I, I look at those virtues and talk about how we can see them in some works of literature. And I also wrote a biography of the 18th century British abolitionist Hannah Moore, who was also a poet and dramatist. And I just finished earlier this year editing a classic series of literature, um, six volumes of my favorite works of literature, some of my favorite works of literature. Um, and I write introductions for them and discussion questions. And they include Jane Eyre, Tess of the Durbervilles, The Scarlet Letter, um, Heart of Darkness, Sense and Sensibility, and Frankenstein. So it's like taking a little course with me with each of these books. So I just, yeah, I just eat, drink, and breathe literature. That is the dream. If I didn't have to <laughs> mark papers as well, I think I would do the same thing. You also run the podcast Jane and Jesus. And season one has been over for a while, and I'm sitting here waiting for season two. So would you mind telling our listeners what you talk about there? That is an exciting and challenging project in my life that started in the past year. I'm not a podcast person. Of course, here we are uh, on a podcast. I do a lot of pod. I'm on a lot of podcasts, but um, this was uh, the brainchild of some friends of mine who just um, they're podcast producers. Uh, it was their idea, knowing that I love all things Jane Austen. They thought, and knowing that I'm, you know, a devout Christian believer, why not talk about Jane Austen? Because she also was a devout Anglican, and uh, and talk about Jesus. But with this is this is what makes the show so interesting to me. With a variety of guests who are not necessarily Christians or believers of any any type, but they love Jane Austen. We did a season on Pride and Prejudice. Got a whole range of guests. Some of them are scholars. Some of them rabbis. A couple of atheists. Um, and we just talk about, we focus a discussion on a, a character in Pride and Prejudice, and, and the conversation goes in so many different um, directions. And we are currently just beginning our discussion of season two, which will focus on Sense and Sensibility. So stay tuned. Ah, sense and Sensibility is my favorite, I think. My wife's is have... Persuasion, but I love Sense and Sensibility. Well, you have good taste. I I love I love them all, but but that yeah, I I seldom meet someone who says sense and sensibility is their favorite. So you're kind of rare. Mm, so I I watched the movie first of all in 2005, the Emma Thomas and Kate mm -hmm. Winslet version, and I absolutely loved that because I was doing my English exams. They, they were fairly, fairly close. They were, they were they were imminent, and uh, I had to write a paper, and so I decided mm -hmm. to do it on sense and sensibility, and I. Just thought the production was wonderful. And I, I like the stories. There are more characters I can identify with. Whereas in, say, Pride and Prejudice, I want to give everybody a good talking to. 
<laughs> <laughs> well, that film is amazing. It's 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 a it's a fantastic film on any level. It's a great adaptation of the novel, and so uh, again, you 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 clearly have good taste. <laughs> <laughs> well, also on the Literary Life podcast, they also just did an episode on the adaptations of Sense and Sensibility. So I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes because it was a really great episode. But we can't possibly talk about Jane Austen without me asking a couple of very important questions. First of all, number one. Pride and Prejudice, TV miniseries or movie? TV miniseries. That is the correct um, answer. We yes, can be friends. Yes. <laughs> okay. And and as far as the movies go, like the Kiera Knightley one is just abysmal. Like, mm. don't even. The soundtrack's quite good. I quite and like and the, the visuals are good, and the and acting is good, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just they don't understand. It doesn't understand the story, so. <laughs> Yes. That's all. That's all. Speaking of not understanding the story, and I'm kind of showing my hand here, have you seen the latest adaptation of Persuasion with Dakota Johnson? Well, I, you know, my excuse was that I literally just pat, turned my book in, which was was due, and I was working on all summer. But there was one night when my brain just <laughs> needed a little break. So definitely get that. I began to watch it. And I couldn't do it. So <laughs> I told my wife, are the 50 shades of Pembleen to be thus polluted? <laughs> I mean, how many minutes in was it before we got to a playlist? Oh, so he wrong. left her a playlist. <laughs> I, like it was, I, I guess maybe it was supposed to be cheeky or something i i don't know i mean but why not just go ahead and do clueless right i mean which clueless mm. is actually a is excellent cheeky adaptation. And good. right yes exactly yeah. like just go for it but mm. okay well we've now passed the orthodoxy <laughs> test so let's move forward uh, but before we actually start talking about lewis's poetry where has jack appeared in your life hmm well, this is, you know, this is, yeah, this is like all true confessions and all of this. So, um, so I, I mentioned earlier, I'm an English professor and there's a, a degree to which when you have, you know, a, a PhD in English, you're allowed to teach anything. You can teach anything related to English, but we also have specialties. My specialty is 18th and 19th century British literature, which also means that I don't do a lot in the 20th century. Um, Lewis is obviously British, but just a little outside my time period. And so I've never studied Lewis a lot um, professionally or academically. I'm just like a regular person out there who read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when I was a kid. I mean, that was a really long time ago before the inter- before people knew anything. I, and I did. I loved it. I had no. I didn't know anything about Lewis being a Christian. I didn't know anything about the, you know, what the story meant. I just. I just loved it. And um. And so, I just thought, thought C.S. Lewis was a great storyteller. Like all of the other great storytellers that I loved to read as a kid and um, just grew up with my nose in the book. And so that's who C.S. Lewis was for me for years and years until well into my adulthood when I realized, oh, he's a Christian and an apologist and all of these other things. And I would say now um, I appreciate him most as an apologist, you know, for mm-hmm. him, like mere Christianity and the four loves. I mean, those are the kinds of works that um, that I gravitate to. Um, but I'm still not a Lewis aficionado. I'm not an expert. I'm just, you know, I, 
I love my 18th and 19th century novels. <laughs> <laughs> well, they very much shaped him, so I'm counting that too. <laughs> Good. But as I mentioned earlier, back in 2020, so COVID's just starting, my wife and I just got engaged, and also Lexham Press produced a lovely new printing of Spirits in Bondage. It's, it's, it's quite a classic look. It reminds me of a lot of the books that my grandparents had. And they were kind enough to send me a copy, which was wonderful. I always like it when people send me books for free. Uh, and there were many wonderful endorsements at the front of the book. People like Dr. Michael Ward and our previous episode's guest, Dr. Don King. But you were invited to write the foreword. So would you mind just telling us a little bit about this edition and your involvement in it? Yeah. So, so like I said, I'm not a Lewis expert. I'm not even a Lewis aficionado. Um, I do love Lexham Press and their work and, you know, what you just talked about with this edition. I mean, they, they produce beautiful physical mm. books and do excellent work. And so, um, yeah, when they invited me to write the foreword, it was an honor. And of course, for me, because it's 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 more because it's poetry, I guess, which I teach and do sometimes write about. I'm not, you know, I'm not again. My my expertise is the novel, but I do write about poetry. I I like to introduce people to to poetry and writers of all kinds. And so, I just uh, you know I accepted the invitation, and I thought I. I hadn't read these poems before. I wanted to read them. I wanted to study them. And I think that's also, I mean, for me as a teacher, I think people who are really brilliant at something and who find things so easy to do that it comes instinctively to them sometimes don't make the best teachers because mm. they don't know how to explain it to other people. I think I'm a good teacher. I'm just being honest here. I think I'm a good teacher, especially of, of literature, because um, it it is. It does come hard to me sometimes. Like I have to work at it. I have to study it, and I have to take it apart and figure out w what makes it so good, what makes it work. And so I just, you know, teaching to me is just doing that with my students. And so I was excited about reading these poems that I wasn't familiar with. Um, and of course, I was. I'm familiar with the trajectory of Lewis's life, and, and, and you know, everyone knows that kind of history. And to just kind of do a deep dive into not just these poems, but his life, you know, in his pre-Christian life um, was, it was just a, a great um, time of study for me and uh, immersion in his work. And so, you know, I just wrote this little foreword uh, where I'm sharing with readers sort of my own um, exploration into these poems. Because mm. as you say, this is pre-Christian Lewis. And that makes this very interesting reading for people who have only ever read his post-conversion stuff. Um, speaking personally, I, I found the lexicon was there. All of the right Lewisian words were there, but they were put in very odd orders. And the meaning behind them was, was a little off every time. Uh, and it made it just really fascinating to work through. Because as I've mentioned on the show, I hadn't touched any of Lewis's poetry prior to this month. I knew I should, and that's why I basically made sure I scheduled this, because it made me do it. Uh, but it's been really quite delightful digging into his poetry. And I had heard some people say that they weren't great fans, but I, I, I can confidently say I found some real value there, even if it all wasn't quite to my taste. And it certainly has filled in a little bit more of the picture of what pre-conversion Lewis looked like. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> Or I shouldn't get ahead of myself because I'm running ahead already. Uh, could you just give us some context for this work? When did Lewis write it and what was happening in his life at the time? 
Sure. Well, it was published in 1919 and it was written, the poems were written, some of them written and then revised and then both during and immediately following Lewis's year serving in World War I, um, in which he suffered what he could have been and, and, and he thought might have been a fatal injury. And so he didn't know if he would live through this. The context of World War I, this isn't just Lewis's own sort of personal existential nightmare. I mean, the entire Western civilization was kind of going through this existential nightmare where, you know, there, mm. there had been this tremendous age of progress in the 19th century where everything just seemed to be improving and technology was <laughs> going to make everyone's life better and um, and, and social equality was on the upswing. All the, Everything just seemed to be improving um, so much. And then all of a sudden it just, it with World War One, uh, it, it turned dark. I mean, this wonderful technology that was capable of saving lives and transforming the human condition all of a sudden was being used to perpetrate, you know, the worst kinds of massacres on, on people that had ever been seen. And um, so, so there was this sort of despair and angst in the air, uh, not only with Lewis, but with other thinkers. I mean, the late Victorian uh, writers that uh, that also influenced Lewis had kind of been ahead of the game and sort of denouncing the Christianity that many of them inherited from their Victorian parents. Um, and so he, in that way, Lewis was sort of a, a product of his age. Um, and then he experienced some of the worst parts of that age and came back from the war um, and went to went to college. And so he was, you know, studying English and, and literature and language and and uh, playing with it, learning to be a writer. And so we see all of that in the, in this poem. I mean, it essentially is the the work of, as I say in the, the introduction, uh, the work of the artist as a young man. Um, mm. That's what we encounter here. A very talented, educated, bright, deep thoughtful young man who has at this point still, you know, rejected God and, um, you know, anything transcendent or good, but he's clearly looking. Yeah. And he even published it under a pseudonym, Clive Hamilton, which I believe was his mother's maiden name. Yes. Yeah, so this was his first published work. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, I don't know enough about his choice uh, to use a pseudonym. Um, and, and it is interesting. Was he still not really sure where he was going to end up and if this was something he wanted to attach his, his name to, um, not mm -hmm. only in a literary sense, but even in just, you know, his, you know, kind of a statement of belief. Um, so. Yeah, I, I definitely remember reading a few Tense and slightly diplomatic letters uh, between him and his father and Warney, mm. because his father was still a firm believer at this point, and there are quite a few statements in 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 the poems which might cause a, a Christian father to be worried about his son. Mm. What about the uh, structure of of the poems as a whole? Uh, Lewis calls it a cycle. How how are these arranged? Yeah. Yeah, he calls it a cycle. It consists of, of sort of three parts or three movements. And so any, this is, you know, this is a, this is not unique to him. The, the, the idea of having a cycle of poems is, is, um, some, is an accepted sort of literary form. And so it, it means that, um, even though the poems can certainly and should be read, you know, 
independently and enjoyed um, one by one, the entire work is meant to be read with the poems in order because there's kind of a movement um, that they go through. And, and the three-part movement that uh, that this cycle goes through, he gives a title to each section. And the first one is The Prison House, then Hesitation, and then the escape. So w- without knowing anything else and just knowing the titles of those uh, three sections, you can see the movement um, and you can see where he's hoping to go uh, through these poems. Hmm. And what would you say are the main themes of the work? Well, the thing that's so arresting about this collection is that the, the there's a, such a range of themes and such a variety of forms um, they're really literally all over the page. Um, and yet you can still see in them these recurring ideas of of sort of this desire for transcendence and yet this mm. despair that there will be transcendence. The This conflict between sort of the world of nature and the natural and the world of the spiritual. We already see like talking animals in, in mm-hmm. these poems and um, which we know <laughs> is will be important in Lewis later. And a lot of just tension and conflicts that I that I describe as sort of in binary categories, which I think is something else that we see continuing in Lewis is, again, it's not just the world of nature and the world of the spiritual, but it's these two in tension with one another um, and with, you know, the human beings against either society or God um, and the, the imaginative world versus the natural, material, concrete world. Um, things, again, that I think show up in Lewis over and over, um, but in this case, they aren't really resolved. And so we just see a lot of longing and a lot of despair. And yet it's the kind of despair that is implies um, a hope for its fulfillment. Like it's not nihilism. It's actually like yeah. I'm despairing because I know there's supposed to be something more. That's already there in early Lewis. Even though he also seems to deny it at the same time. It, it Reading this, it really was kind of like a whirl of contradictions, which is why mm-hmm. I chose the quotation at the beginning where he's describing his state of mind in Surprised by Joy, that he both denies that God exists and is angry at him and is angry at him for creating this world. Yeah, that quote really is probably the best sort of encapsulation of the of the themes that we see in these poems. It's an outworking of of what he describes later looking back at this period of his life. Yeah, and it is in that sense kind of frustrating to read because you you, you want to sit down with this Lewis and help him unpack, maybe hand him a few books that he's going to be writing in a few, in future years uh, to help him unravel some of these contradictions. Mm. But what was striking was joy, as he would later come to call it. The Zenzut, the longing, is very present, even back at this time, even in the midst of the horrors of World War I. That, that, does, that yearning for the transcendent is still definitely there. And so... Reading this helped me fill out the surprise by joy a little bit more to really see that he's not making it up. He's not just projecting back onto himself how he felt. Here you get to read. I think Owen Barfield says this is one of the very few places where you get to read a pre-conversion Lewis in his own words at the time. And Mm. you see that thing that will ultimately drive him towards God. Mm. 
And I think, you know, you talked about sort of the frustration of, of reading these poems, knowing, you know, knowing where Lewis ends up and he's not there yet, and knowing also that there there are answers to these questions. Um, but there's also a kind of, I mean, here we are a hundred years later, and, you know, as a teacher in a Christian institution, I see a lot of younger people um, struggling with some of these same questions. Mm. Um, and so... Uh, I think it, you know, there's just something so um, valuable and fruitful for people who might have some of these questions to sit down with a great mind and great thinker and great writer like Lewis and say, hey, you know, well, as he says elsewhere, like, oh, you too, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, there, there, there is, you know, people who have these questions and these longings aren't alone. I would encourage anyone, uh, the sort of deconstructing, doubtful, angry Christian or evangelical might not want to be reading the later Lewis. Um, but this is a Lewis we can hand them and say, you know, he's been there too. And he understands these questions. And there is a psalm quality to them as well. There are enough mm. psalms of lament and anger towards God. There's that similar kind of feel that we find here among Lewis. There's, there's, a, there's a crying out, mm -hmm. but if you actually believe what he thought, there's no point crying out at all. Right. That's the contradiction and that, you, that, you know, that is captured in that quote that you used to open, right? I mean, you know, being angry at God for not existing. Um, it speaks again to that hole in our hearts. You know, we, we, we're made in his image, and so we can only deny um, that reality uh, for so long and in so many ways, and um, it's still there. Hmm. St. Augustine. He gets everywhere. <laughs> now, what poetic forms does Lewis use in this book? And also, what would you say are some of his influences? Yeah, so he's clearly, as I mentioned earlier, he's a, you know, he's a young scholar studying literature and language and drawing on the sources that he uses. Probably the most obvious um, source that he draws on is, is Milton, because the title phrase Spirits in Bondage comes from um, from Paradise Lost. It's actually, it's a phrase spoken by the character of Satan in Paradise Lost. Um, and Satan and the demonic uh, play an important role in this cycle of poems um, in, in, in a similar way that Milton used them, maybe not in, in a way where Lewis is grappling with kind of the spiritual realm and good and evil. Uh, and so he uses a number of forms. He uses ballads and lyric and formal um, verse and informal verse. Um, this is actually one of the points of criticism, you know, contemporary criticism when the work came out is that that even some of the, the uh, forms that he used were already archaic. Sometimes it's hard for us reading poetry today, I mean, I deal with this with my students quite a bit, is when we're reading poetry, even if it's 100 years ago, it seems archaic to us um, because yeah. our language has changed so much. And so you might read Lewis and think, oh, that's just because it's like, you know, 1919 language. Well, no, it's actually more like, you know, 1850s language. It was archaic <laughs> when he was using it. And so so he did get criticized um, for for his, uh, the, for these, again, it was, you know, he wrote, published this pseudonymously, so people didn't know, but the poems were, were criticized for being, you know, using um, outdated archaic forms and for being derivative. But this is a poet, I mean, this is what artists do, right? We There's a, a level of imitation and practice that we all have to 
go through before we develop our own style and voice. And so that's another thing that's fascinating about um, reading this because Lewis did write poetry later in his life. Not not a lot, but um, I mean, this is partly why he turned to to prose because the the reception for this collection was rather cool. But, um, you know, he's he's finding his voice. He's playing with forms and using different verse forms. And that's what poets have to do. And all mm. writers have to use different, you know, try different forms. And there was also something in the style, perhaps not the structure, but that reminded me of some of the other war poets. I remember when I was in high school, we read a lot of Wilfred mm. Owen, a, a substantial amount. And a lot mm. of this does kind of read like that, um, particularly with the imageries of death and, mm. you know, these machine monsters just eating up humans. And actually, I think one of those... Um, those poems in particular, and I don't want to get, you know, too far ahead, but one of the strongest poems in the collection, I think, is one of those that really more reflects that the voice of the World War, other World War One poets, of which, I mean, Lewis is one. And so when he writes in that style and that mode, which was contemporary for him, I think that's where he's strongest. Mm. And in your forward, you also mention some other influences like the Romantic poets, and Lewis will go through Romanticism himself, and when he becomes a Christian, sort of have an adapted Romanticism that responds to some of the criticisms of it. But in Surprised by Joy, he says that from a very young age, he became a votary of the blue flower. Um, and you also mention there's a, there are ideas from Platonic idealism and a sort of dualism in his, in his thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is actually one of the, because my primary area of expertise is 18th century British literature, which is neoclassical and really the opposite of romanticism. I have a longstanding kind of animosity toward capital R romanticism. <laughs> I'm, you know, in my old age, I'm, you know, and I, I'm, I'm growing and I'm becoming more appreciative <laughs> of it. Um, but I've, oh, I just don't like platonic idealism or capital R romanticism or small R romanticism. And so it's actually, quite frankly, been one of the things that I've not appreciated about Lewis in my adult life is is his, you know, platonic idealism. But going through these poems and seeing that influence and seeing early on, it actually helped me to understand him better and to appreciate him better. But that I think that that um, is something that does stay with him throughout his life. But he, he integrates it into Christianity. And I mm. think, uh, you know, as I said, as I'm growing older and studying more, I'm, I'm coming to and we're sort of reaching the end of late modernity. And it's, it's anti- romanticism and anti-idealism yeah. i'm coming to appreciate it more i mean thank thanks thanks a great deal to malcolm Geit. i'll just be like <laughs> completely honest he's teaching me a lot and so um i have more appreciation for romanticism now mm-hmm. well we kicked off this series with malcolm and yeah his stuff is excellent <laughs> it I've, is, I've never it met is. so somebody so enthusiastic about poetry in my life he's a he's just uh he's a one of a kind we're blessed to have him. <laughs> so you mentioned that the public reception of this book was rather cool. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about that? And also, what's your assessment of it coming to it afresh like this? Yeah. So um, 
the book it didn't get a lot of of attention um it was just you know a, a youthful work by an anonymous or you know i mean pseudonymous but no one no one knew who this author was um and so i don't think that there was a, a great deal of reception um but it does seem like it was enough to to have lewis kind of turn to prose but again you know he's a young man he's trying out his hand at writing that that actually makes sense um and so and and I think that you know critics today they would say the same thing. I mean, this is just the work of a the first work of a of a young developing writer, um, and I think I mean just approaching this. I'm you know again I'm not a poet. I, I study poetry a little. I teach poetry. I appreciate poetry. Um, so when I read poems like this, I feel like I'm I'm learning too, right? I'm learning to uh, I'm I'm learning not only about Lewis, but I'm looking at the different forms he uses and and seeing what works, what doesn't, what feels to use sort of the contemporary lingo, what feels authentic, and maybe what doesn't <laughs> seem authentic to to him at that time, um, where it seems more derivative, more fresh and real and raw, uh, and so um, it's really this collection is like a good education and poetry for someone to just pick it up and read it they will encounter a lot of different styles and forms and subjects um and it's you can just go with it and and pay attention to your responses to it and 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 see what works and what doesn't um and so i think it's a beautiful little volume that's almost like a classroom in poetry <laughs> i like that description well let's continue the classroom uh, and uh, if you wouldn't mind picking out a couple of your favorite poems and just mm. talking to us about them. Uh, as, I've, as I've said in the run-up to this series, and I will continue saying throughout, a lot of people will do a little bit of poetry in high school and maybe never again, and sometimes they won't even do that. So the idea of picking, picking up a book of poetry is quite an alien idea. So mm. I'd like to give people a little bit of a flavor for what they might encounter so they can see that that there's really value here and that this can be an enjoy an enjoyable experience and not simply just homework. Hmm. If I can just put on my my teacher hat for a minute before I do, which I've probably had on the whole time but um <laughs> it's so easy to be intimidated by poetry. But if you yeah. can read words and you maybe use a dictionary <laughs> You can read poetry. The thing that is so hard about reading poetry for us today, my, my belief is, is that we are so used to reading fast and we just want to get the information. Mm -hmm. We want to get to the end. And all you have to do to read poetry well is to slow down and just take it in and sort of luxuriate in the words and 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 and. You know, and pay attention to how they're formed and arranged. You're not just reading for information. You're not just reading to get to the end of the stanza or the sentence. Um, and so that's that's the little the kind of encouragement that I want to give to anyone who might feel like they struggle with poetry. So the first poem that I want to read from, I won't read the whole thing, is the one that I think is I I mentioned earlier that is really one of the best in the collection. It's the well, it's the second one that that a Appears because he and he has them numbered. It's it's number two, French Nocturne, and here he's writing about. Um, it's a war scene. It's him in the war scene, and actually, I had something marked to read, and now I already want to read a little bit more. Um, so <laughs> I, <laughs> I had one stanza, but okay, I'm going to read two stanzas that, that are not connected. But um, there comes a buzzing plane, and now it seems flies straight into the moon. 
Lo, where he steers across the pallid globe and surely nears in that white land some harbor of dear dreams. I mean, that's just one stanza, four lines. We get the war scene, the buzzing plane. We get sort of the terror and the horror. We get an archaic word like low, which, you know, takes us back. And we get this idea of a land of dear dreams. I mean, it's all there in these four lines, the sort of present, you know, harsh reality, the world of dreams, the archaic language, the imagery. Yeah. Um, and then the last stanza in this poem, and again, this one, you know, it's, it's, it's not the first poem, it's the second one, but it still does stand as sort of an introduction to the whole cycle. What call have I to dream of anything? I am a wolf. Back to the world again, and speech of fellow brutes that once were men, our throats can bark for slaughter, cannot sing. Hmm. I mean, I, I cannot imagine really the horror of war because I've never lived through it, experienced it. Um, but I just imagine a young, poetic, sensitive, thoughtful man being in this situation, doing what he's doing, experiencing what he's see, experiencing. And he sees himself as a wolf who can only bark for slaughter. That is powerful. At school, we read All Quiet on the Western Front, and the, the word that was used repeatedly throughout our discussion was dehumanization. And mm. here is a lovely poetic rendering of that. They are men who have been turned into beasts. Mm -hmm. You're already getting echoes of Narnia and uh, the magician's nephew that you better be careful, otherwise you might become a dumb beast again. And that's what he's saying that mm -hmm. they have become. That's what the war has yeah. done to them. And, and there's also in the, in, in the opening line, what call have I to dream of anything? Yeah. He feels the, the poetic impulse. He feels the hope rise within him. And then he keeps catching himself and saying, you fool, why, why hope for anything? Mm -hmm. you, you, you keep thinking that the world is going to be better, that things will be good, that there is mm -hmm. something wonderful out there, but it, there, there isn't. There's nothing but death and decay. Mm. I just want to give him a hug. No, <laughs> and there's an echo here, although I think this, again, I think this poem is very contemporary in the best way. I mean, he's writing like the language and imagery is of, of his life at this time, you know, at this time in this moment. But there's also an echo here, and I mentioned his influence being influenced by um, the mid-Victorian poet Matthew Arnold. Um, and there's a kind of despair um, and emptiness in Matthew Arnold. I'm thinking of Dover Beach in particular. And we have it here, um, but it still it seems more, it seems up to date. It seems like this, you couldn't get more present in Lewis's life and his poetry and the language than this poem. Yeah. No. Yeah, it is a really good one. And actually, one of the things that I liked about the series is a couple of my favorites are actually right near the beginning. So they sort of got mm. me a little bit of momentum. Sometimes you get a collection of poetry and you have to sort of get about halfway through before it starts getting good. But I do want to point out, this is um, there's a poem that's just so different in this collection, but yet it's also Lewis and it's also... I don't, I just, I just love it. So this is, um, it's poem 24, um, page 55 in this edition called In Praise of Solid People. <laughs> and it seems like just kind of a little, uh, almost silly, sing-songy, um, upbeat poem. 
on the surface and in in a way it is but yet it's also it, it's just this is the stuff of real life and i love that lewis just even in the midst of 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 this very deep heavy <laughs> searching cycle of poems stops to, to to say this and i'll just i'll read uh i'll read like the first few stanzas this is a long longer poem Thank God that there are solid folk who water flowers and roll the lawn and sit and sew and talk and smoke and snore all through the summer dawn, who pass untroubled nights and days full fed and sleepily content, rejoicing in each other's praise, respectable and innocent, who feel the things that all men feel and think in well-worn grooves of thought, whose honest spirits never reel before man's mystery overwrought. Yet, not unfaithful nor unkind, with workday virtues surely stayed, theirs is the sane and humble mind, and dull affections undismayed. And I'll just skip to the last uh, mm-hmm. stance. He goes through it's a couple pages, then he says... Then do I envy solid folk who sit of evenings by the fire after their work and doze and smoke and are not fretted by desire. Now, this is a sort of simple sing-songy poem, as I said. And yet, again, if we just sort of slow down and take it in, he begins by saying, thank God, right? (laughs) Which is just an expression that we use, but... There are still, you can't, you know, there's an echo there, whether you believe in God or not. When you say, thank God, that echo is there. And when he talks about solid folk, I love that there are at least two meanings to that. He's sort of talking about like regular everyday folk, Mm -hmm. but also maybe three or more meanings, like solid in, you know, like in a moral way, but also solid. These aren't spirits, right? These aren't ethereal beings. These are like real people. This poem is kind of a, a mastery of form and content because he is talking about solid, every, you know, everyday people, and he presents them in the imagery of, of everyday life and the, and the pleasures of everyday life and the realities of everyday life. And he also, when he talks about how, you know, that they rejoice in each other's praise, well, he's praising them. And like, so he's giving them the praise that they deserve for just being human beings. And it's well placed because there's a lot of heaviness in this <laughs> cycle. And um and this there's just a lot in this poem that seems on the surface to just be sort of a simpler poem. But there is also an undercurrent of what we've seen elsewhere in the book. Because while he praises them, it's almost like he's saying, oh, to be that simple, just to be that yeah. easy. Because he then talks about himself. Then suddenly again, the room, familiar books about me piled, and I alone amid the gloom by Mm. one more mocking dream beguiled, and still no nearer to the light, and still no further from myself, alone and lost in clinging night, the clock still ticking on the shelf. It's almost like he would, part of him wishes he could just be like them, Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, because then he wouldn't be tortured. But as you said in that final stanza, they're not fretted by desire. Mm-hmm. He, he feels something in himself that's calling him beyond. Mm-hmm. And, and that is both wonderful, but also torturous. Yes, yes. If he didn't have that, then he wouldn't envy them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the line, what good amidst these, O me, O life, of the trains of the foolish, of the city, of the faithless. It, it, it's describing a world that is quite happy by itself, uh, but limited. And the, mm-hmm. the poet 
feels drawn to something else. And that is both a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. And there's this, you know, you you kind of alluded to this. There's this, there is, a, a, and this is part of the youthfulness, that sense of like, he's a tortured artist, right? Oh, Which is partly much. true, but also, yeah, a little bit capital R romantic um, <laughs> and idealistic. And, and it's something I think that he you know, he comes to outgrow in his life, you know, and kind of synthesizes this tension of, oh, these people, I'm not like them, I envy them. But then I think later in his life, he begins to see how, well, no, you know, even everyday people have the same kinds of desires. (laughs) The hounds of hell. (laughs) I know. The other thing that I thought while I was reading this book was the scene in The Great Divorce where Lewis's character meets uh, a young poet, a tousle-haired poet, which when we went through that book in season two, we suggested this is probably a younger Lewis. And when I now imagine that that poet searching searching his pockets to pull out some poetry to read to our narrator, I think it probably was Spirits in Bondage. Hmm. That's a great connection. Hmm. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you for giving us some context, talking us through a couple of poems. Uh, what is your final pitch to people as to why, and specifically Lewis fans, why should they read Spirits in Bondage? Hmm. I, I have a couple. Um, if you're if you are a fan at all of Lewis, I think you will just see the Lewis you love in this collection, but you'll also see a Lewis that you didn't know. And I think that's Mm. worthwhile. Um, And I think this is just a great for anyone who just wants to be more introduced to poetry or study poetry further. Um, As I said before, this is like a little classroom in poetry. There are many forms, many uses of of, um, different uh, poetic forms and different images and language and and themes. And and then the third thing is just if you have any appreciation for, you know, the aesthetic um, pleasures of a a solid book, (laughs) it's Lexham just did a beautiful job with this, with the shape and the paper and the font and the cover. It's a beautiful object of art. Every t- every time I, I close it after reading, I'll, I always run my hand across the front cover. It's got a lovely texture mm. to it. <laughs> Dr. Karen Swallow-Pryor, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And as the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell our listeners where they can go to pick up a copy of Spirits in Bondage and where they can find out more about you and your various books? Well, uh, the best place to get this book is either directly from the publisher, Lexum, or your favorite independent bookstore like Hearts and Minds Books or Eight Day Books. Um, or you can go to Good Shop Books. I think that's online. And for any more information or um, or resources about me, you can go directly to my website, karenswallowprior.com. Wonderful. Thanks again for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you for spending this hour with us. Thank you to our patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Erica, Marvin, Joel, Angela, Deborah 1 and 2, Amanda, Thomas, Anonymous, Anony Mouse, sorry, Bill and Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, K, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And I would recommend, if you want to get a bit more background to what Lewis was experiencing, I thoroughly recommend Joseph LeConte's book, a Hobbit, a Wardrobe, and a Great War. And we'll be continuing our poetry exploration for the rest of this month, and then in September we will be wrapping up Season 5. 
So please join us then when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.